0: Hello, and welcome to Learning, Laughing, and Loving with your co-host, Evan Money, and yours truly, Scott Jones. This podcast is all you need. If you're looking to learn about the world, do it with a smile and to connect to the deeper mysteries of human life and the kind of connection everyone is looking to make. Evan, welcome back to the show. Uh, Although I shouldn't say welcome back. We should welcome each other. I'm used to like... During the interview intro, where I'm kind of welcoming a guest, but this is our show. So, you know, just welcome. Good to reconnect and people can know that the show is now live. Our first episode is up and live. Uh, So we're excited about that.
1: Scott Kent Jones, learning to share. I love it.
0: Exactly. Not the easiest lesson in the world, whether (laughs) whether you're a kid or whether you're an adult.
1: (laughs) That is true. But as my first mentor, Jim Rohn, reminded me, everybody wins when you share.
0: So you're on the West Coast. What is the rioting scene like out there? Ah,
1: It is reminiscent to me as someone's born and raised in Southern California. Uh, Reminiscent a little bit of Rodney King and all of that. But this has been the first social media riot. So that is what adds this layer of, you know, you show one person with a sign and now it's all of Los Angeles, right? Right. So it goes back to, which harkens, which is so interesting as we're going to ADD this around all the way around the block. But if you look at the civil rights movement of the 60s. And I'm learning this all from uh, my hair mentor, Malcolm Gladwell. There's a great picture on my website of me and Malcolm side by side. And, you know, he's got this giant afro and I have- And you're bald. Yes, and I'm bald. So, I call my hair mentor and everybody loves it. So, uh, but he talked, I forget which, I think it was David and Goliath, but he talked about how even with the the limited media that we had in the 60s, everybody assumed- that the civil rights movement was this massive movement and people were lining the streets and oh my gosh and when in reality it was like three people and they would just film the people watching and just the way that they shot it you assumed that everybody there was protesting when in fact four people were protesting but everybody else just kind of came out to watch to see what was going to happen. <laughs> So, you know, through Gladwell's kind of scraping things back, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, you mean there weren't thousands? No, there weren't thousands. No, really? Wow. So um, a lot of these riots, of course, exasperated by COVID-19, and people are just looking for someone to take it out on. Because, of course, logically, it's like, okay, I'm going to throw rocks at my local police officer, who's probably a really nice guy. Um, But I got no one else to throw rocks at, so I'm going to throw it at him, and somehow that rock I throw at my local guy is going to hit the guy in Minneapolis, right? (laughs) It's like unbelievable. But I will tell you this, from a hope standpoint, and I hope you got that email where I showed those pictures to you. Um, I will describe it to our audience and our listeners. So there was a young man that I had a chance to mentor while I did a lot of volunteering with the foster care system. Here in Los Angeles. And we had uh, a, a beautiful run. I, I could go on and on about uh, the enrichment and some of the kids and just all the stuff. But um, I was the rule breaker and doing things I wasn't supposed to do for for the sake of the kids and loving the kids. Because um, there's a lot of things you can't do with foster kids. Like you're not, al- we did this whole video thing for them and you're not allowed to video them and show it publicly because they're wards of the state and all this crazy stuff. So we're like, did all this cool stuff to find out, oh, you're not allowed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. So anyway, broke a lot of rules with this kid, just encouraged him, mentored him. And uh, this was back when he was high school. And I said, hey, man, you know, and his his big dream was graduating from college. And I'm like, man, I know you can do it. Da, 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 da. Um, so a couple of years, three, four years go by, and I haven't heard from him. And I was still volunteering off and on. And I get this text out of nowhere, Scott Kent Jones, of this kid. And he sends me a text of him in his graduation gown from uh, I, f- I forget which college, but he's like, hey man, I made it. Look. And he's got the, you know, the valedictorian, you know, coup de gras, whatever, uh, on his sleeve. And so he sent me a picture from his college graduation. I was so proud of him. He goes, Hey, you know, thanks so much for your encouragement. I made it. And then I, I kept in touch with him. And it turns out that his chosen profession was he wanted to be a police officer. So he is one of LAPD's finest. And you look at a picture of him. And it is not the picture of the LAPD from the NWA and F the police and all that. I mean, you have this shining example of the new face of law enforcement. So this young, marginalized foster kid who's seen it all, been through it all, is now carrying the badge. So if another young kid wants to come up and F the police, it's like, hey, dude, I'm you, you know. I've been there. I know exactly how you're feeling. Let me walk you through this, and it's so encouraging, so encouraging. This this new face and this new culture, this new trend, as these young officers are coming up. And also, lastly, Scott Kent Jones, I saw a great video on the NBA Network of all things, and they showed a video of this was in Flint, Michigan, and it was a. A video of a police chief during a situation, or it would be—I saw this. I,
0: I, 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 oh, wasn't that amazing? It was, it was just the one where he says, "Let's not make this a protest. Let's make it a parade." And he, ate.
1: yes, I stood up and cheered. I was
0: like, yes. I mean, that was the kind of leadership. I mean, that's just amazing leadership. And and there's been a couple of stories like that. We're like in here. I think in Southern Florida, there was a group of people who took a knee and prayed as in front of the protesters and spontaneously the protesters start hugging the police. Like, yeah, and there's this, cause they get it. Yeah. yeah. No, and I, I also think like, it's interesting cause you're right about the COVID stuff. You know, I think everyone's on edge. And also I think you, it, it's a stress test, right? Like, you know, like, like when you go to mm-hmm. like the COVID stuff, I think for our society has been a stress test. Like, Oh, you get another thing. Is your heart Okay. So, oh, here's where our healthcare system can't handle stuff, or here's where this is kind of weak. And I think we have some racial issues and just issues to deal with around um, inequality and things. That, and I'm not I'm saying not prescribing answers to them. They're just they're just real issues. And I think like what what usually happens in these situations with with riot, like what led to Ferguson, right, in Missouri, was there were several other incidents, right, and then it just kind of and like what you're saying with social media, it it it, it gets sparked, like you. And that video was horrific. I mean, it was awful. I mean, it was, and, and nobody, I don't hear anybody from the right or the left saying it's not horrific. Um, and it's just kind of, it's a tinderbox. Like, it's this weird, perfect storm where you've got people, you know, they can't telecommute and you, and you're, you know, you have less opportunity than you had before, which is already kind of slim in urban areas. You've got, you know, racial issues to deal with. And you get the video, the COVID 19 and, and And I just think that there's this kind of tinderbox effect that like gets ignited but, but but i think you know what's powerful about the stuff you're sharing is like there's also a possibility for a tinderbox of love right like
1: absolutely the, the, yeah
0: there's a possibility to like really um and i don't know like what that flint guy's politics were or anything but it was, well i know there are the politics of vulnerability uh, yeah. that's what his politics are yeah. and that's so powerful when someone actually disarms themselves yes and says yes. I'm a human you're a human how can we connect yes cuz most people want to connect on that level i mean yes. it, it, it's it's what we're all craving um,
1: Abs- absolutely and and here's the thing for me is like let's with uh, so with george okay yeah i know i'm on a first name basis right but but look at this george floyd thing so as a human being the the color of his skin is irrelevant i don't want a police officer doing that to me I don't want a police officer doing that to my son. My son <laughs> had an experience with the police a couple years back where he shows up at the door with the police officer at my front door. My bride answered the door. She says, honey, you got to take care of this. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what happened? And it was a big misunderstanding. My son was experimenting a little bit. He was actually going to chop. Long story short, we have a cul-de-sac at the end of our street and the cul-de-sac is at the city line. So, we're, we're in Los Angeles County, and there's two cities. So, for those that are listening cross-country, like in New York, New York has boroughs, but everything is New York City. In Los Angeles, we have Los Angeles County, but there's hundreds of cities, their own cities. Some cities have their own police force, some cities use the sheriff, whatever. So, end of the cul-de-sac, and we're in a rural area. So, there's all this overgrowth, and there's these giant bougainvilleas, and, you know, you have to kind of go through this little trail to get to the other cul-de-sac of the other street. And so, my son was bored, homeschool kid, so he took a machete to go chop down uh, all this foliage. So, he actually wants to do something constructive, but he purposely dressed up nefariously. Uh, He had a black hat on, he had a bandana on. This is pre-COVID-19. And he's walking down the street with a machete. And so, the police, uh, the sheriffs got calls from our side of the street and on the other side, they got calls to the local police department. Hey, there's some gang member with a machete walking around. And this is in the middle of the day. So a police car comes screaming up, put the machine gun down, get down on the ground, you know. And then all of a sudden he realizes, you know, my son is 15. He realizes just a kid with a machete doing yard work. <laughs> and so he, he shows up ready to pounce and then he laughs and he puts my son in the front seat of the car, Scott Kent Jones. Uh, not in the back seat, in the front seat, and then drives him home and is like, hey, you got to tell your son, you know, this is what happened, da, 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 da. But my son tells the story. goes, yeah, the officer shows up barking and then starts laughing. So as, you know, looking at what happened to George Floyd, it's like from a human level, I, you know, th- this, humans cannot treat other humans this way. And then you talk about the spark of love, Scott Kent Jones, listen to this, we're going to get heavy here. So if you look at one of the most brutal empires of advanced civilization, that would be the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was built on brutality. You know, public torturings, public executions, public beatings. You know, there it was such a brutal environment. And the stuff that we're doing now is like patty cake compared. Now, I'm not taking away what, what happened. You know, to George Floyd and some of this other stuff. But in the Roman Empire, this was on a daily basis. Like a Roman soldier could walk into your house. Kill your mom, rape your sister, kill your dad, and then extort taxes from you, legally. And that was just this brutalistic society. And yet, the one person, let's talk about the spark of love, Scott Kit Jones, that can truly understand police brutality and a public e- execution is Jesus himself. Yeah. And here's what he said to all of this. Well, Jesus, what should we do? And he said, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for those that harm you. And it's like... Oh, my – and I – every time I read that, my hairs go up on my neck because I don't feel like praying for certain people, especially the people I don't like. And yet, here is the answer. So, I always – you know, I'm always like, well, why should I pray for my enemies? And the truth is, this is the long-term answer. So, you and I don't have the answers, but God already gave us the answer a long time ago. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And this is where, you know, it's interesting because the people in Atlanta, the civil rights leaders in Atlanta, were particularly crushed by this. Because Atlanta was kind of the capital of peaceful, you know, king and peaceful nonviolent and, and mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. show people mm-hmm. the way of love. And, and they're just like, I mean, it, this is, you know, like it, you've seen some civil rights leaders respond that knew that tradition, you know, the, the Jesus tradition which also was the is the Gandhi tradition and the King tradition. Yes, it has this, it has yes. this ability to kind of disarm people, like that sheriff yes. did in Flint. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's interesting when you watch some of these civil rights leaders and their heartbrokenness, because they really yes. did the hard thing of doing that, like, and yes. sitting there and being hit with. Um, you know like with fire hoses and the dogs being sicked on them mm-hmm. and these kinds mm-hmm. of things and like it's it's a, it's a it's a yeah and and, that, and there are people doing that now and it's actually most of the protests are nonviolent it's it, it, it's the kind of folks coming out of the woodwork you know in different weird you know nooks and crannies of society that are kind of uh it's just hard because it it's it's not it, most of the protesters are not saying, let's get violent, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, No, no, and exactly. And and here's another thing. I I was on a call, similar, you were talking about the call you were on today. I was on a call with a group of leaders and influential folks, and um, one of uh, the guys that spoke is someone I've looked up to, and he has a, a high position in society and all this stuff. And he asked, he goes, you know what? And here's what's interesting. He said, how do we take back the narrative of these protests being hijacked by what you just talked about. They're being hijacked by the media and hijacked by these, you know, scum felons that, oh, here's an opportunity. The police are over here. I can go loot this store. And it's like, you know, how do we take the narrative back of, again, people just, they don't necessarily want to protest per se, like saying they, they want to be heard. They want to, you know, have their voices heard, not be violent. And, Yet these forces come in and want to turn it into something that it's not. And it was such a great question of like, wow, how do we take these back? Because again, people don't show up saying, oh, I want to go, you know, I want to go break into the store. No, they just want to be heard. And at the core, right, if we look at our core, the way God wired us, Scott Kent Jones, we all just want to be seen, heard, and recognized. Yes. And so, how do we be seen, heard, and recognized for what we want to be seen, heard, and recognized for, not, um, you know... Getting again the narrative taken from us, and this whole thing of like, hey, I didn't, I wasn't here for this, but it turned into this. And wait a minute, what's going on? So, there's a lot of stuff swirling just from your original question of, you know, what it's like over here. And then there's towns like I have businesses and vendors all across the United States. I have people in like, you know, middle of nowhere, Georgia, you know, talking about, oh, yeah, people are demonstrating and rioting. And they're like, this is a tiny little town. There's no, You know, there's really no reason for this. So, I I think it's people kind of grasping at straws. Like, I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want to be recognized. I don't know what to do. So, the default is this. So, that it's, yeah, you got this perfect, you know, this perfect storm, like you said, but again, a perfect storm for a spark of love. So, I'm excited to see this, you know, kicking off with this, uh, I don't know if he was police chief or who he was, but that video of him just like, hey, let's have the parade. So, maybe that's the new hashtag. Let's have a parade.
0: Let's have a parade, yeah. So, I sent you an article today that uh, was a summary of a, it was a USA Today book review of a guy who was on my podcast, my interview podcast, like about a year and a half or two years ago, I think a year and a half ago. Um, and I'll put the link in the show notes. But his book is Road to... His name is Brian Vandemark, and his book is Road to Disaster. Um, a new history of America's descent into Vietnam, and he really became like Robert McNamara's confessor. He became McNamara's, you know, the guy, one of the guy at Kennedy freewheel, you know, one of the brilliant insiders in the Kennedy administration that you know, like who helped get us and keep us into Vietnam. Like, uh, uh, and and this guy became a research assistant for McNamara on his biography, his autobiography, and his memoir. And it just, I asked him in the interview, like, what, what drew you to McNamara? He's like, well, you know, he's one of the only guys in D.C. that ever said would say they were wrong, <laughs> which no one ever says. Mm, yeah. uh, so he, he wanted to go on the record all the places he was wrong. And he's like, that blew me away. But this guy who wrote the book has this amazing history of, of the Vietnam War. The first 125 or 50 pages of the book, it's a big book. I mean, it's not a beach read, unless... Unless it, <laughs> it's unless, unless it's a, a desert island, like it, then it's a great <laughs> beach. Trip. But it's a it's a thick 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 book. But like the first 120 or 150 pages is all about social psychology and all the studies mm. that we now have done about how hard it is to change course when you're wrong. Oh yeah, and yeah. He, lo- he 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 kind of looks at this data and, and 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 interprets the some of these defense decisions in light, in, in Vietnam, in light of it. And basically, you know, so we get talking. It's an amazing book. I mean, the book is amazing. The guy's a great guy. He teaches at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. And, you know, we get talking. And he says, you know, I, I feel like it's my mission. I look at these midshipmen, you know, these the midshipmen who I'm teaching, they're going to be officers. Some of them are going to be inevitably, at least a handful of people that I'm teaching are going to be in the Situation Room in the White House. And mm. I'm trying to get them emotionally to a place where they can not double down when they're wrong, yeah. And he's like, "This costs us in Vietnam." I feel like it's costing us um, around issues of race, uh, you know, uh, on issues of inequality. On the COVID stuff, I sent you a podcast the other day by from Tony Robbins. I didn't even know he had a podcast, but this brilliant podcast where these epidemiologists who are not ideological. People, S-
1: say that three times fast, just for me.
0: I sent you this podcast by <laughs> Anthony Robin. No, no, no. Epidemiologist, <laughs> epidemiologist, epidemiologist. <epidemiologists>. Yes. <laughs> but these guys were not ideological, and they were all guys. I mean, like you know, there were, um, there were, there were no females. And that's fine. I'm just saying, you know, when I say guys, these are all people that go to the men's room. But it, these are non-ideological guys. I mean, they're not right wing or left wing. They're just like scientists, and all of them acknowledge that. The data we had early on definitely justified the shutdown, um, but the data we're having now, that th- there there's a more complete picture, and well, it, maybe it's a little different, like than, than we think it is. Like the 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 Princess Catherine over that that cruise ship. One of the guys said like that was the perfect study, and like basically no one, like I think the infection level at that place n- on that ship, not everyone got infected. And he was saying, like, basically, when you look at all the data, the virus burns out at a certain level. And I was, and I've been one of the people, just ideologically, who've been pretty cautious about opening up. Um, But listening to their data, I was like, well, yeah, like, well, maybe what? What if my assumptions are just completely wrong? Like, how many of them are just completely wrong and are shaded by the media or the original data and? Are we getting the right data models? And and again, their kind of perspective with Tony Robbins... And this is like a two... I'll put in the show notes. It's like a two-hour podcast. It's long, but it's super informative. And Tony Robbins does an excellent job. Um, as a guy who does not have a medical background, he does an exceptional job of talking with them in a way that's incredibly intelligent, um, enlivening. And you can tell these guys really were engaged... But that's that's kind of the thing. These guys were not saying the shutdown was a total mistake. It's just hey, the data models have changed. And what do you do man, when the data models change? And can mm. you change? Mm. And that and that's leadership
1: 101, right? So managers don't want anything to change and try to keep everything the same because they want to manage, right? We need to manage this, right? Manage. And where leaders, real leaders understand that everything's changing all the time. So, I, I think there is a leadership crisis uh, in a lot of the government world. And, like you talked about, you know, in the poker term, right? You're pot committed. Right, right, right. Like, whoa, we've already put all this money in. I, I can't walk away and say that I'm wrong because my hand sucks. <laughs> you know, it's like
0: I heard a professional uh, poker uh, player say once there's no such term as pot committed. <laughs> like, you're not pot committed, there's never a term. You can always fold.
1: Yes. Yes. And I'm teaching that to my son. We, we, he's slowly gotten into it. And so, we, we play at home. We don't have chips. We have stones. And I asked him, I said, well, son, what's better, losing four of your stones or losing 10 of your stones? <laughs> he's like, four. I'm like, okay. Because he was always going after, well, I've already bet so much, I can't. I'm like, your hand is the same. You have new information, i.e. the flop, i.e. the river, right? Whatever. You have new information now. So based on your new information, folding is the best move. <laughs> and so teaching him how to get out of that thinking and just saying, hey, I've got new information. It's time to course correct. It's time to be a leader and say, hey, this is what's going on. Um, you know, I love what Tony said in that podcast. I haven't got through the whole thing. You are you have the beautiful mind of the show here, by the way. And I, Evan Money, need the cookies on the lower shelf. So You're able to assimilate, you know, everything these guys are throwing out. I'm like, I got to hit pause and let my brain digest it and all this stuff. But I love what Tony talked about. We're all entitled to our own opinion, but we're not entitled to our own facts. And that has shifted. And that's another podcast we could do about this this new trend of – you know, truth, right? This trend on truth of, well, this, this person is just speaking their truth. Well, I'm not interested in their truth. I'm interested in the truth. And so, that becomes this other shade of gray where we can't even get to the truth anymore because it's like, well, who's truth? <laughs> well, wait a minute, you know? Well, what the heck's going on? So, um, yeah, really, really uh, interest for such a time as this. And I definitely uh, enjoyed Colson's book, Uh, called Born Again. And that was his journey through Watergate and through the Vietnam War and through all of that. And his book was kind of the same thing. Hey, I was wrong. Hey, in his mind, it was the ends justify the means, whatever it takes. And then it was like, wait a minute, this, I'm wrong. This this doesn't work. Hold on. How do we unravel this? How do we do a Molly's game and take full responsibility and not sell people out and say, yeah, I'm willing to go to prison, right? So, uh, yeah, we're at a really back to your initial initial point, Scott Ken Jones. We are ready for this spark of love and this spark of of new leadership, and it starts with you, Scott. Uh, well, and it starts it, with yeah, me.
0: Exactly. I w- I'd rather it start with you than me. I would be. I would be your your <laughs> second lieutenant. You know.
1: Well, no, but but here's the thing. Everyone's like, well, what do I do now? What's the right thing? And how do we? You know, it's so big. How do we? And it comes back to this is what i I've, I've been in, encouraging people all week. Is okay we all understand love is the long-term answer. we're like, yeah, yeah, but, but what do we do now? Okay, well, let's start with what you can do. Who can you love, right? Who can you forgive? If, if we all did it on a macro level, right? You know what? You know, First, we got to get past our parents, right? For, for those of you that haven't forgiven your father or your mother yet, let, let's start there, right? And then let's work on that neighbor, right? And you know what? Riots don't happen when people love each other, right? Parades happen, right? So, I think the call to action is all of us to start with us and say who can we love, you know, who can we pray for, who do we need to go over to and go, hey, I'm sorry, right? And it's that personal responsibility. And this is my war cry now till the the, the time that I go to heaven is that in order for things to improve in this country, in this world, Scott Kent Jones, I must improve. In order for things to change, I have to change. In order for things to get better, I have to get better. And it really starts and ends with me. And if everybody kind of adopted that and took this mass responsibility, you know, that is the actual cure of like, okay, well, who can I love? You know? And if we all were looking for that, rather than looking for the rock to throw, I think we'd be a lot better off.
0: No, I totally agree. I mean, I, I'm trying to think if we talked about this in the last podcast or not, but um, there was a story in NPR where a nursing home owner uh, dipped into his own finances. Uh, like, you know, to, and he's a wealthy guy, but he still did. I mean, it wasn't in the operating expenses. He dipped into his own reserves and just got RVs for all the, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, I mean, yeah, yeah. 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 This is a, a radical thing. He gets RVs gets restaurants to bring the nurses and the nurses aides food. They had no deaths, no infections in his nursing. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. but that was just the act of love. I mean, he didn't, there was no kind of, um, nobody told him to do that. Uh, there was no regulation that, in fact, and again, I'm a Democrat, but there was Andrew Cuomo was putting people into, um, nursing homes with COVID. Um, and again, I don't think Cuomo has done an overall bad job in New York. I mean, I think he's, you know, it, this is a messy thing. And he, he was on today. I think Cuomo's great. Today he was saying, sometimes government gets it right, sometimes government gets it wrong. You know, you're not going to, like, and that's what a good leader does, I think. It sa- says those mm-hmm. things. But man, yes. this is a guy who just saw the people in his care and did a loving thing. It was not systemic. Mm-hmm. It was not, yeah. and again, we ought to think systemically, like you know. That I'm not against systemic thinking in any in any regard, but like, but this is the kind of thing where this guy just sits down with his whiteboard and thinks, "How am I the loving owner of the nursing care, n- the nursing home, mm, and yeah. comes up with an idea yeah. that is costly, hard, but has saved so many no deaths, no infections."
1: Yeah, yeah. Let me let let me give another love story that just. Uh, popped in my head. God put this on my heart to share. So, I have a mentor of mine, uh, older statesman. He, I, I consider him one of the wealthiest men in uh, the state of New Mexico, uh, both, uh, you know, financially and family-wise and life-wise and health-wise. And just an incredible man. And just my bride and I, he, we were blessed to just be able to go and sit at their feet and just learn. Because I'm like, man, look at you. You're, you know, in your upper 70s, you're fit, you're healthy, you have a thriving marriage, your kids are happy, you know, this is legacy, right? And it's, you know, thriving businessman. I'm like, you speak, I listen. <laughs> you know, you, you jump, I say how high, let's, you know, let's dial this in. And he told me this story about business and love that I will always remember. I want to share with you, Scott Kent Jones. So early on, he was thrust into ownership of a funeral home, one of the largest funeral homes in the state. And it was his grandfather's, and he was going to be the heir, and he came on board. And unfortunately, the grandfather went to heaven way before he was supposed to. <laughs> so, he came on board as this young, wet behind the ears kid, and it's like, well, you're the heir, you know, time to, you know, and he was, uh, he tell me, he's like, I, you know, for the first couple of years, he couldn't even sleep because, you know, he, the, just the amount of debt and just what it took to run a business. I mean, he was in way over his head, way over his head, but blessedly, he allowed God to kind of fill in the gaps and was able to grow into it. And at one point, they decided, Talk now, you talk about the RVs. Now, listen to this. From a funeral home perspective, he sat down and looked at the numbers, which is what a real, uh, uh, an actual business leader needs to do, right? Because if the business is out of business, you know, you can't help anybody, right? So, looked at the numbers, Count counted the cost, right? As we talk about in you know the the ancient Greek scriptures and Hebrew scriptures, right? Count the cost before you start building. And he looked at it and he says, "You know what we want to do for this community? If anyone in our state has a child that dies, we will pay for the entire funeral. No questions asked. Wow, out. because because no parent should have to go through. Wow. That. And if and if he in looking at the numbers, it was like we can't afford this. This makes no financial sense. I don't. You know, I don't know how it's going to play out, but, you know, God whispered to him that this is what you need to do. This is the love, right? This is how you love one another. So anyone that had a child that died could knock on his door and they would do the whole funeral for free. And I was like, no wonder you're such a success. No wonder you have this incredible blessing and all this stuff going on. I was like, what a decision. And I was like, can you imagine? That decision harking to Vietnam, right, or any of this other stuff, right? like you know, I know it doesn't make financial sense, but you know, just was like blew me away, so he's kind of my right in president. I'm like, man, <laughs> if anyone would be a great president, it would be you. Uh, he's like, no, no, not for me, but yeah, those are the stories of love uh that actually happen and actually work, and of course, his business flourished, and you know it's you know you see people now that make a a business plan out of that. And I'm not putting down Tom's shoes or these other ones where buy one, give one, right? Uh, but he invented that, you know, 30 years ago. And it wasn't about marketing. It was just about, hey, this is how I can love others through this, you know, incredibly tragic time and i'll always remember that scott kenjo
0: you're an apple mac guy right do do you as am i um do you ever find yourself wishing that steve jobs was bill gates cuz i think about like i don't like the stuff bill gates designed <laughs> i think it was clunky and weird but like but i think steve jobs had an aesthetic and but he was kind of like he didn't have a lot of love in his heart like where bill gates man you you look at the guy i i saw him interviewed like 3 weeks ago maybe about the pandemic and this guy just he just really cares. Like he, he he's, he's, and he was talking about this like years ago, right. On Ted talks and stuff. Like we got to get ready for this. We got to get ready for this, but he's set. Like he doesn't have to do this. Like Bill Gates is, he's got a lovely wife. He's got a lovely lifestyle. He doesn't have to do this. Like he could kind of just live a kind of self-indulgent lifestyle. Or, and even just not even maybe just a moderately indulgent lifestyle and still give, <laughs> but he just puts his energy into uh, loving the world in a way that that is mm. that is beautiful right I mean it, it's it's in, it's inspiring I mean it's a really kind of m- model of someone that that's climbed to the top and doesn't apologize for success right I mean like mm. that's what also what I appreciate like Elizabeth Warren with her tax policies. He was like, "Look, I mean, and this is a little excessive, and I'm, i am give my money away, and I don't mind paying taxes. But there's kind of some things where you—you're going to go too far. But like, so this guy, but this guy doesn't mind paying taxes, and he gives his money away. But but there's something about him that's like the—the the older he gets, it seems like the more he gets the love connection you're talking about, like mm. where mm. it seems like something about Steve Jobs, the older and the more and the more successful he got, he became more disconnected." you know like mm. he he became more isolated. Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's one of those outside looking, you know, we don't obviously don't know the real sure. real story, but um but I can definitely, you know, from the movies I saw about Steve Jobs, but just from, you know, the lifestyle and everything else and um no no, that's that's a real, you know, that that's a real interesting. What if, right? Like, switch the CEOs. Whatever happened, or Chris Goss, and you know, what if they work together, or what if the one bought out the other? Now, fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. So, let me ask you, Scott Kent Jones, I got a question for you because we're 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 bouncing around, but it's really exciting. So, on on this theme of doubling down on a mistake, uh, you know, people. You know, if if you really want to impress people, we, we talk about our failures. So tell me an area where you doubled down on a mistake and we're just like, uh. So share something with that that the listeners can really chime into and, and talk about pulling out of that. Because that's the other part too, is um, you know, we I I believe God always gives us a chance, you know, free choice. And then it's like, well, those those seeds are going to sprout. Eventually, they are going to have to deal with that. But always gives us the tools to kind of get out of it, and if we want to, come back stronger. But but share share a time where you double down on a mistake, and you know, I know on mine, I knew I was doubling down, and I knew a mistake, but I didn't care. Um, but but share
0: one of you. So I was pastoring a church. Um, we, it was uh, I inherited it from. It was a hip church in suburban Philadelphia, like right at the edge of the city. We were in a we- A city, of brotherly love. all ties in exactly. Brotherly fire, brotherly fire, right now. But um, we were like this hip kind of warehouse church. We only had it like you know it wasn't huge. We had probably had you know a couple hundred people. Like, um, but we were out. We like our facility. we were leasing it. It Was it was a warehouse. It was hip. Um, It was cool. But it was just exceedingly expensive uh, and the I inherited the leadership role. I was the teaching pastor my buddy was the lead pastor. He needed to kind of do more online stuff. we, we were both bivocational so I was teaching and he uh, you know so we, we both had two jobs basically I was teaching and pastoring he was doing. Um, web design and um pastoring and he needed to do more web design stuff. So he kinda handed it over to me. Um with the congregational vote and everything. It was it was it, but it was so but he and I both but he stayed on staff and everything for a while. Like and we knew we needed to get out of this building. We just knew we needed to. Like it was not it was gonna kill us financially. Like we we were paying way too much on the lease. I mean it was an industrial kind of, you know, park that like um rents were increasing and things like that. And, it, and our building got sold. Like it basically got sold to a new landlord and we were like, this is too unstable. And a con a mainline congregation agreed to rent to us. It was four miles away. Um for like a third of the price. Uh and we did a vote on it. Um ninety some percent of the people voted yes. And it was still wrong. It was just like too much anxiety. Like, like it was. I thought because people voted, or no, maybe it was like no, it wasn't ninety. I, mean, I think it was seventy percent or something. It was, but there was, it, 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 yeah, it was seventy percent. I think. And it was like clearly we could do it. Um, and first of all, we didn't even have to do it because the way the church constitution worked, the elders could make this decision. And the elders were all like, "Let's get out of Dodge. This is a dumb decision if we stay here." And I thought about it and. We should have stayed for six more months. Um, it would have been financially worse, and we might have gotten a hole. But it just it, 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 the I think the leaders like we knew it was the right decision. I mean, on one level, but the people didn't know, and they, and there was an emotional attachment to the funkiness of the warehouse versus this you know kind of main and the mainline thing was beautiful. It was built in the eighties. Um, was this little kind of Robert Shula era? Like if you built it, it would come. And, mm-hmm. It had sunlight and big open spaces. You could see deer during the service, like running around. It, and it was, but it was just so everything seemed right about it. Uh, but I should have waited. And I, and I think everything leadership wise, every any mistake I've ever made was timing. I think like it usually wasn't like I just had a stupid idea. And so I have those, but generally, like I, I have a good network of people that like generally are like, that's a dumbass idea. It's usually for me. I step on the gas when I should hit the brake, or I start pumping the brake when I should be hitting the gas. Mm. And that was one of those instances where, like, it was t- it was I should have been pumping the brake and pumping it hard, and I hit the gas. Um, and it w- we lost people. Uh, it was awkward. It was it went well for a little while because like, it was it was exciting and new. But we basically it was like. They, this congregation wanted to kind of merge with us, which we, we were open to at first, but then we realized we were just wow, we're too like we're in a different kind of vibe, mental like just spiritually, mm-hmm. like we're kind of like looking to who's not yet here, not who's already here, and and they were kind of looking to who's already here, like it just was. There were just many things where like I, where it seemed like um, it was great, and so like I I put the gas on. And I should have hit the brake and said, "Look, it's going to cost us several thousand dollars." It's not like we're like wealthy as a church, and like you know, we're on a shoestring budget. We're we're a church plant that's only been around for like eight years, or whatever. But it was definitely the wrong decision. Um, like bigly, as Trump would say, it was bigly rough. <laughs> like that was a time to hit the brake, even though it, it 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 seemed like everything like. And I asked people. Like, lots of people like told me, "Hit the ga- hit, like hit the gas." Uh, and I knew it was wrong, but I just did it. <laughs> uh, I just didn't like. There was something I knew that was like, "Yeah, this we got to go slower." Uh, and I didn't do it. Uh, I just thought, well, you know, this is you know, we we've got good energy. Like, um, we'll bring them along, and everybody will bring everybody else along. And that's just not how life works in those situations. I mean, people were anxious about change. Um, people were drawn to our kind of community because they were anxious about, like, things. And, you know, like, they came from disparate kind of weird religious backgrounds, and people, like, found it like a shelter. They found the building as, as messed up as... Well. There was mold in the building. <laughs> like, but still, like, they, they, they found a comfort in the building. We had a little coffee bar. It was, you know, it was... Coffee bar yeah, and mold. Yeah, coffee bar and mold. It was great. Yeah, can, yeah, give me a give me a, lot, give me a latte with a little uh, sprinkle of mold. Just just, <laughs> hey, it's just good on cheese. Exactly. I mean, you what's different? Put your it? hand on the wall, and then it. You know. <laughs> but that, no, that was a clear example where like I feel like timing was everything in that moment, and mm. and I should have. It's it's the whole thing, the McNamara thing. Like I should have backed. I should have walked back and just said, let's stop. Mm. Like, what would it cost us? A couple thousand bucks? I mean, okay, which is not nothing. I mean, it's not nothing for a small community. But, like, we could probably take two months and figure it out. Like, uh, But I was just like, this is the right leadership decision. Look at me. I, I just, I solved the money problem. I did this. Yes, I did that. Yes, like, ah, this is just the right yes. decision. And it was not the right decision at the time. Mm. Like, it might have been the right decision a couple months down the road, but um, it was not the right decision. Mhm. Mm.
1: Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll end it with two short stories. So, for me, I have uh, about 50 podcasts worth of doubling down on decisions financially in business in all different areas that uh, did not go well. And it's only a failure if you don't learn something. So, I equate my uh, business uh, failures to degrees in what it would cost. So like, oh, that was an associate's degree mistake. Okay, that was a master's degree. Oh, I got a PhD in that one. So I've got a, a PhD in the car business uh, from those <laughs> errors in judgment. But again, it's it's only a mistake and a failure if you don't learn something. So I again, I got a wall full of degrees in all of those areas because <laughs> it's like, oh, I learned something. Oh, I got that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what I will share is something I think that can touch everyone listening to this show right here because it's so easy to fall into. So, one area that I found myself doubling down on in total error and judgment and knowing it came to disciplining and uh, leading my family and my children. So, my bride and I have a thriving marriage. Things are tremendous. It is awesome. My bride and I, to this day, have never had a fight, Uh, We respect each other too much for that. We believed in a a high level of discovering happily ever after and creating that. And I have a whole marriage course and all the stuff that we do. So, I won't drone on about that. But when it comes to my kids, and now they are teens, I found myself doubling down on yelling at them. Mm. And I knew exactly like, this is not helping, but I'm going to yell at them anyway. Oh, and it's still not helping. I'm going to yell at them more. Do you and do you feel like that's because just, you
0: had a challenging childhood and you don't want them to repeat the story or
1: Uh, I think part of it, well, let me let me really hone in on my parenting failures. It really came down to, you know, all, you know, guys especially and this is this is a much longer conversation, but we struggle with three areas, and that's everything that guys struggle with is all in these three. It's identity, it's intimacy, okay? And it is integrity. And so, the bottom line with me failing as a parent was it's much, it feels better temporarily to yell at my kids for something they should be doing than actually having the calmness and realizing, hmm, I'm a parent. They need a parent. Why am I getting frustrated when I need to do my job, right? It's like being you know, you see it in football, right? Like, why is that player getting so upset? It's his job to tackle that guy. You know, that's your job. Go tackle the guy. So, getting frustrated at my young adults because they need parenting is like, duh, I'm a parent. They're young adults. They need a parent. If they didn't need a parent, they wouldn't be living in my house. (laughs) They would be already out of the nest. So, it just came down to this thing of just what I'm like, yeah, what's happening now? Like, I would rather throw a rock and yell at my local police officer then really look at inside because when there's anger, there's fear, right? It's like, well, what am I, what's really going on? What am I afraid of? So it was understanding that's like instead of doubling down and yelling at my kids, why don't I double down on my impatience and really take some deep breaths and go, okay, what's really going on here? Oh, I'm yelling at my kids because I thought they should have known this already, but they don't know this already because I haven't taught it to them. <laughs> it's like, hmm. So that's kind of the the real story there. So I think that doubling down on coming back to like, hey, the biggest room in my house is the room for improvement so as as heinous as that crime was and it really was a crime that that police officer committed um you know i i'll'll'll sh- I'll, leave with this story that I, I heard yesterday, and, and you, you've probably even done a sermon on this one, I don't know the guy's name, but there's a story that goes, one of the Roman soldiers that was actually getting ready to nail Jesus' feet on the cross. Um, so, here you have Jesus' hands on the cross, right? And Jesus is a human being at this, at this point, right? So, right before he's driving the nail into his feet, him and Jesus lock eyes and at that moment this is this is how the story goes at that moment Jesus was able to connect with this soldier because in just in this look in the look that they exchanged Jesus was able to convey I totally get you because as a human being there have been people I've wanted to drive a stake through you know there's been people that I've wanted to do this to you know you know just in my thoughts obviously physically I haven't done it and in that point, the Roman soldier connected with Jesus so deeply, like they both saw each other. There was no condemnation that was just total like, I get you, I am you, I love you, in spite of what's going on. And at that moment, the Roman soldier drops the hammer and the spike and walks off. And it's like, I'm no longer being this tool of the, the Roman Empire, strips off his armor and just walks away. And the the story goes that he became a great leader and a great philosopher and someone who was, you know, kind of had a, a parallel and in in taught with his disciples of just this moment of saying, man, there, there is no us and them. It's all just us. You know, there's only one race and that's the human race. And if we really double down on love instead of, for me, yelling at my kids, and what if I double down on love and going, hmm, yeah, I feel yelling at my kids, but that's not going to help. So, let's really get down to what's going on here. So, that's the the journey I would encourage everyone to take. It's like, hey, you know what? We've all made mistakes. Instead of doubling down on them, let's just take a deep breath and say, hey, who can I love today? Let's have a love revolution. There it is.
0: My friend, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and um, we'll do it again soon.
1: Scott Ken Jones, appreciate you. Appreciate the platform and look forward to an exciting, tremendous love spark in spite of all and just because of all the stuff that's going on. We've got no place to to go but up. That's right.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Learning, Laughing and Loving with Evan Money and Scott Jones. If you like what you've heard here, please do something for us. Go to iTunes and write a review, give us a rating, tell people, share it on social media. If you found something you love here, share the love and goodness with the world. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.